Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmage Read by Bradley Ross The text for this book is available from Project Gutenberg at gutenberg.org Chapter 9 The Boy of Nazareth Joseph, Mary, and her son remained in Egypt until after the death of Herod the Great, which event was made known by another angelic visitation. Their stay in the foreign land was probably brief, for Herod did not long survive the babes he had slain in Bethlehem. In the return of the family from Egypt, the evangelist finds a fulfillment of Hosea's prophetic vision of what should be. Out of Egypt have I called my son. It appears to have been Joseph's intention to make a home for the family in Judea, possibly at Bethlehem, the city of his ancestors, and a place now even more endeared to him as the birthplace of Mary's child. But, learning on the way that Herod's son, Archelaus, ruled in the place of his wicked father, Joseph modified his purpose, and, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. While Archelaus, who appears to have been a natural heir to his infamous father's wickedness and cruelty, ruled in Judea for a short time as king, then with the less exalted title of Ethnarch, which had been decreed to him by the emperor, his brother Antipas governed as Tetrarch in Galilee. Herod Antipas was well-nigh as vicious and reprobate as others of his unprincipled family, but he was less aggressive in vindictiveness, and in that period of his reign was comparatively tolerant. Concerning the home life of Joseph and his family in Nazareth, the scriptural record makes but brief mention. The silence with which the early period of the life of Jesus is treated by the inspired historians is impressive, while the fanciful accounts written in later years by unauthorized hands are full of fictitious detail, much of which is positively revolting in its puerile inconsistency. None but Joseph, Mary, and the other members of the immediate family or close associates of the household could have furnished the facts of daily life in the humble home at Nazareth, and from these qualified informants, Matthew and Luke probably derived the knowledge of which they wrote. The record made by those who knew is marked by impressive brevity. In this absence of detail, we may see evidence of the genuineness of the scriptural account. Inventive writers would have supplied, as later such did supply, what we seek in vain within the chapters of the Gospels. With hallowed silence do the inspired scribes honor the boyhood of their Lord. He who seeks to invent circumstances and to invest the life of Christ with fictitious additions dishonors him. Read thoughtfully the attested truth concerning the childhood of the Christ. And the child grew, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. In such simplicity is the normal, natural development of the boy Jesus made clear. He came among men to experience all the natural conditions of mortality, he was born as truly a dependent, helpless babe as is any other child. His infancy was in all common features as the infancy of others. His boyhood was actual boyhood. His development was as necessary and as real as that of all children. 
over his mind had fallen the veil of forgetfulness common to all who are born to earth, by which the remembrance of primeval existence is shut off. The child grew, and with growth there came to him expansion of mind, development of faculties, and progression in power and understanding. His advancement was from one grace to another, not from gracelessness to grace, from good to greater good, not from evil to good, from favor with God to greater favor, not from estrangement because of sin to reconciliation through repentance and propitiation. Our knowledge of Jewish life in that age justifies the inference that the boy was well taught in the law and the scriptures, for such was the rule. He garnered knowledge by study and gained wisdom by prayer, thought, and effort. Beyond question, he was trained to labor, for idleness was abhorred then as it is now, and every Jewish boy, whether carpenter's son, peasant's child, or rabbi's heir, was required to learn and follow a practical and productive vocation. Jesus was all that a boy should be, for his development was unretarded by the dragging weight of sin. He loved and obeyed the truth, and therefore was free. Joseph and Mary, devout and faithful in all observances of the law, went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. This religious festival, it should be remembered, was one of the most solemn and sacred among the many ceremonial commemorations of the Jews. It had been established at the time of the people's exodus from Egypt, in remembrance of the outstretched arm of power by which God had delivered Israel after the angel of destruction had slain the firstborn in every Egyptian home, and had mercifully passed over the houses of the children of Jacob. It was of such importance that its annual recurrence was made the beginning of the new year. The law required all males to present themselves before the Lord at the feast. The rule was that women should likewise attend, if not lawfully detained, and Mary appears to have followed both the spirit of the law and the letter of the rule, for she habitually accompanied her husband to the annual gathering at Jerusalem. When Jesus had attained the age of twelve years, he was taken by his mother and Joseph to the feast as the law required. Whether the boy had ever before been present on such an occasion we are not told. At twelve years of age, a Jewish boy was recognized as a member of his home community. He was required then to enter with def definite purpose upon his chosen vocation. He attained an advanced status as an individual in that thereafter he could not be arbitrarily disposed of as a bondservant by his parents. He was appointed to higher studies in school and home, and when accepted by the priests, he became a son of the law. It was common and very natural desire of parents to have their sons attend the feast of the Passover and be present at the temple ceremonies as recognized members of the congregation when of the prescribed age. Thus came the boy Jesus to the temple. The feast proper lasted seven days, and in the time of Christ was annually attended by great concourses of Jews. Josephus speaks of such a Passover gathering as an innumerable multitude, the people came from distant provinces in large companies and caravans, as a matter of convenience, and as a means of common protection against the marauding bands which are known to have infested the country. As members of such a company, Joseph and his family traveled. When, following the conclusion of the Passover, the Galilean company had gone a day's journey toward home, Joseph and Mary discovered to their surprise and deep concern that Jesus was not with their company. After a fruitless search among their friends and acquaintances, they turned back toward Jerusalem seeking the boy. 
Their inquiries brought little comfort or assistance until three days had passed. Then they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. It was no unusual thing for a twelve-year-old boy to be questioned by priests, scribes, or rabbis, nor to be permitted to ask questions of these professional expounders of the law, for such procedure was part of the educational training of Jewish youths. Nor was there anything surprising in such a meeting of students and teachers within the temple courts, for the rabbis of that time were accustomed to give instruction there, and people, young and old, gathered about them, sitting at their feet to learn. But there was much that was extraordinary in this interview, as the demeanor of the learned doctor showed, for never before had such a student been found, inasmuch as all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. The incident furnishes evidence of a well-spent boyhood, and proof of unusual attainments. The amazement of Mary and her husband on finding the boy in such distinguished company, and so plainly the object of deference and respect, and the joy of seeing again the beloved one whom to them had been lost, did not entirely banish the memory of the anguish his absence had caused them. In words of gentle yet unmistakable reproof, the mother said, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. The boy's reply astonished them, in that it revealed, to an extent they had not before realized, his rapidly maturing powers of judgment and understanding. Said he, How is it that ye have sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Let us not say that there was an unkind rebuke or unfilial reproof in the answer of this most dutiful of sons to his mother. His reply was to Mary a reminder of what she seems to have forgotten for the moment, the facts in the matter of her son's paternity. She had used the words, Thy father and I, and her son's response had brought anew to her mind the truth that Joseph was not the boy's father. She appears to have been astonished that one so young should so thoroughly understand his position with respect to herself. He had made plain to her the inadvertent inaccuracy of her words. His father had not been seeking him, for was he not even at that moment in his father's house, and particularly engaged in his father's business, the very work to which his father had appointed him? He had in no wise intimated a doubt as to Mary's maternal relationship to himself, though he had indisputably shown that he recognized as his father not Joseph of Nazareth, but the God of heaven. Both Mary and Joseph failed to comprehend the full import of his words. Though he understood the superior claim of duty based on his divine sonship, and had shown to Mary that her authority as earthly mother was subordinate to that of his immortal and divine father, nevertheless he obeyed her. Interested as were the doctors in this remarkable boy, much as he had given them to ponder over through his searching questions and wise answers, they could not detain him, for the very law they professed to uphold enjoined strict obedience to parental authority. And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. What marvelous and sacred secrets were treasured in that mother's heart, and what new surprises and grave problems were added day after day in the manifestations of unfolding wisdom displayed by her more than mortal son. 
Though she could never have wholly forgotten, at times she seemingly lost sight of her son's exalted personality. That such conditions should exist was perhaps divinely appointed. There could scarcely have been a full measure of truly human experience in the relationship between Jesus and his mother, or between him and Joseph, had the fact of his divinity been always dominant or even prominently apparent. Mary appears never to have fully understood her son. At every new evidence of his uniqueness, she marveled and pondered anew. He was hers, and yet in a very real sense not wholly hers. There was about their relation to each other a mystery, awful yet sublime, a holy secret, which that chosen and blessed mother hesitated even to tell over to herself. Fear must have contended with joy within her soul because of him. The memory of Gabriel's glorious promises, the testimony of the rejoicing shepherds, and the adoration of the Magi must have struggled with that of Simeon's portentous prophecy directed to herself in person. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. As to the events of the eighteen years following the return of Jesus from Jerusalem to Nazareth, the scriptures are silent, save for one rich sentence of greatest import. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Plainly, this Son of the Highest was not endowed with a fullness of knowledge, nor with the complete investiture of wisdom from the cradle. Slowly, the assurance of his appointed mission as the Messiah, of whose coming he had read in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, developed within his soul, and in devoted preparation for the ministry that should find culmination on the cross, he passed the years of youth and early manhood. From the chronicles of later years, we learned that he was reputed without question to be the son of Joseph and Mary, and was regarded as the brother of other and younger children of the family. He was spoken of both as a carpenter and a carpenter's son, and until the beginning of his public ministry, he appears to have been of little prominence even in the small home community. He lived the simple life, at peace with his fellows, in communion with his father, thus increasing in favor with God and men. As shown by his public utterances after he had become a man, these years of seclusion were spent in active effort, both physical and mental. Jesus was a close observer of nature and men. He was able to draw illustrations with which to point his teachings from the varied occupations, trades, and professions, the ways of the lawyer and the physician, the manners of the scribe, the Pharisee and the rabbi, the habits of the poor, the customs of the rich, the life of the shepherd, the farmer, the vine-dresser, and the fisherman, were all known to him. He considered the lilies of the field, and the grass and meadow and upland, the birds which sowed not nor gathered into barns, but lived on the bounty of their maker, the foxes in their holes, the petted house-dog and the vagrant cur, the hen sheltering her brood beneath protecting wings. All these had contributed to the wisdom in which he grew and had also the moods of the weather, the recurrence of the seasons, and all the phenomena of natural change and order. Nazareth was the abode of Jesus until he was about thirty years of age, and in accordance with the custom of designating individuals by the names of their hometowns in addition to their personal names, our Lord came to be generally known as Jesus of Nazareth. He is also referred to as a Nazarene, or a native of Nazareth, and this fact is cited by Matthew as a fulfillment of earlier prediction. 
though our current compilation of scriptures constituting the Old Testament contains no record of such prophecy. It is practically certain that this prediction was contained in some one of the many scriptures extant in earlier days but since lost. That Nazareth was an obscure village of little honor or renown is evidenced by the almost contemptuous question of Nathaniel, who, on being informed that the Messiah had been found in Jesus of Nazareth, asked, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? The incredulous query had passed into a proverb current even today as expressive of any unpopular or unpromising source of good. Nathaniel lived in Cana, but a few miles from Nazareth, and his surprise at the tidings brought by Philip concerning the Messiah incidentally affords evidence of seclusion in which Jesus had lived. So passed the boyhood, youth, and early manhood of the Savior of mankind. Mm -hmm.